The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and uh, 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, Today's program is uh, unusual. I think we are going into a field that we have uh, scratched the surface of, but one of the fields that is really becoming one of the most prominent in our field of anthropology and archaeology, and that is what is known as paleoanthropology, and that is the field that intersects human anatomy, human evolution, and archaeology. Um, and it is a field that looks at the evolution of the species from the uh, earliest hominids or from the earliest forms that transitioned from uh, being in the trees to walking and coming down to earth and evolving in uh, both the physical and, uh, for lack of a better word, mental situations. Um, and this is a field that has received a tremendous amount of attention recently because of uh, the ability for us to retrace our origins through the use of mitochondrial DNA. We've talked about that in the past. And because the models that we have for human evolution are constantly changing at a rate that was almost unimagined when I was a graduate student and when I was studying these types of things. So today's program is developed devoted to one particular aspect of the evolutionary study or the hominid study, and that relates to locomotion or movement and the transition from um, uh, hominids living in trees or hominids living in trees to actually coming down to the ground and how they walked and what that entails and what the contemporary research is showing us about that transition. My special guest today is Dr. Jeremy De Silva, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at Boston University. Uh, Dr. De Silva is a functional morphologist who specializes in the locomotion of early apes, hominoids, and human ancestors or hominins. He has a particular expertise in the foot and ankle and has worked most recently on the amazing two million dollar old two million year old skeletons of the South African hominin uh, Australopithecus sediba. 
He has studied fossils in museums throughout East and South Africa, and he's studied locomotion in wild chimpanzees in western Uganda, and currently oversees an exciting research project studying the range of variation in modern human walking. Before entering academia, uh, Dr. De Silva worked as an educator at the Boston Museum of Science and continues to be passionate about science education. Uh, welcome to the program, Dr. De Silva. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, let me uh, begin with a rather simple question. How did you get into this field from uh, being essentially a science educator in the museum and then uh, redirecting your studies to this sure. fascinating question of, of human evolution and specifically <laughs> locomotion? Question. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, uh, I never took an anthropology course at all in college, which sometimes shocks my students. It does. Um, yeah, I, I worked at the Boston Museum of Science, um, absolutely fell in love with teaching about science um, at the museum. And my boss um, one day approached me about updating our human evolution exhibit and because it had gotten outdated. And as you said in the introduction, there had been so many wonderful new discoveries um, that we needed to, to you know, talk to the public about these new fossils and the new genetic approaches that are being taken to understand human evolution. And so I started to research um, human evolution, and I read books by Ian Tattersall um, and, and you know, Stephen Jay Gould and just got absolutely hooked on understanding human evolution. I, could, I became obsessed with it. <laughs> At a certain right. point, my boss just said, okay, you, you, are, you need to go to grad school now. You, know, you found the thing that, that you absolutely love, and you need to go to grad school. Uh, and so that's how that all started. And then you uh, was your initial interest in the uh, lower extremities, shall we call it, or were you more concerned with uh, other broader questions about sure. early tool production, et cetera, sure. et cetera? Yeah, um, I had the problem of being interested in everything, so I had a uh -huh. really hard time narrowing things down. I mean, I knew I was interested in fossils, and I was interested in how scientists bring these things back to life. Of course, not literally. But how do we flesh these things out? How can we go from just a pile of bones to really thinking about how these things lived their lives, how they moved, what they ate, um, whether they could talk or not, what they thought about, what their daily lives were like? I, I just loved that skill um, that paleoanthropologists um, have, and I wanted to do it. I wanted to learn more about it. So I... Um, the, the locomotion aspect happened gradually, um, and, and my specific interest in, in foot anatomy and ankle anatomy and climbing versus bipedalism and that sort of thing happened when I had an opportunity to go observe wild chimpanzees in, the, in Uganda, and I was filming them, and what uh, the first time I was out there, I was absolutely blown away by what they were doing with their feet. Um, their ability to twist and turn their feet in a way that if I tried, I, w I would snap every ligament in my foot. So clearly something different is happening. And if only we could understand what the bones look like that allowed a chimp to climb the way it was climbing and prevents me from doing that, then we could address the fossils to see whether those things were climbing like a chimp or walking on two legs more like, more like I do or, or a little bit of both. Now, the early work that has been done in this field, and it's gone on for a while, 
uh, certainly address these questions mm -hmm. about posing thumbs and the ability of chimps and gorillas and the, the greater and the lesser apes to some degree. The morphology of, obviously, the extremities was very striking from an mm -hmm. early period. I mean, we learned that when I was in grad school, certainly, too. Sure. And I think what you're saying is you looked at sort of the finer points of the shape of the foot and probably the legs and, and the way they interacted together. So on a very general scale, uh, when you did this filming on the mm -hmm. chimps, what did you see? What was most striking and what led you to really pursue this in greater detail? What I saw that blew me away was the ability of a chimpanzee to flex at its ankle so extremely that it could take the top of its foot and press it right against its shin. That wow. was amazing. And I didn't even need to quantify it. I eventually did, but you don't even need to put numbers to that. When you see something sticking the top of its foot against its shin, and if I ever tried that, I'd be in a hospital, right? So right. obviously there's something different here. Um, that was the extreme motion. And it turns out that all of the apes have that ability. Um, and in part, it's because their Achilles tendon is very small, so they have a lot of muscle back there, and muscle right. stretches more, and so they could flex more. Um, but biomechanically, what they were doing is bringing themselves closer to the tree. And by bringing themselves closer to the tree, there's less of a uh, sort of a torque. There's less of a pull on them when they're climbing, trying to drag them off that tree. So it's right. a very nice climbing adaptation. Um, that humans that le actually it leaves its mark on the bones. So the ankle structure of a chimpanzee and a gorilla and orangutan is very different than the ankle structure uh, of a human. And so if we can uh, then apply that to the fossils, we can have some sense of whether these things were climbing more like modern apes or whether walking on two legs actually uh, comes at the expense of being able to climb. So let's go back on that. I mean, it's fascinating, uh, clearly fascinating, but how much work had been done in, uh, let's just talk about the functional morphology, the relationship mm -hmm. between the the ankle and its, it, its flexibility, its range of motion, etc. How much work had, of that sort had been done prior, than, prior to yours? Sure. Uh, shockingly little. Really? Is, yes. Um, most of the work had been done in captive situations where you can have more control over where you position cameras, how you can acquire angular data on, on how an animal you know, positions its body when it's climbing. But many of those animals have never been in, in the wild. And in the wild, they're not climbing ropes. Right. Um, they're climbing very different kinds of substrates. So what I saw was a, a real lack of understanding in our field of how these things climb in the wild. Um, and we have to understand how they climb in the wild if we're going to interpret fossils. Um, and so, so there was very little sure. uh, that had been done on these, these wild animals. Um, and so a lot of, you know, our, what our field, um, and any field goes through this, where we get very excited about fossils, of course. Of course and yeah. we will look at the shapes of fossils, and we will infer from the shapes of, of these fossils what these ancient creatures were doing. But it requires us to actually go back a few steps and say, are we sure that's true? Are we absolutely sure? Do we have a good model? Can we look at a modern chimpanzee, uh, uh, for instance, measure 
uh, uh, how it climbs, measure the angles on its joints when it's climbing, infer some sort of forces that are happening at the joint, and then predict what the bone should look like if those bones are giving us a signal of a particular behavior, say climbing. And that takes, those, I mean, those are dissertations, at every joint we're talking about and every kind of locomotion we're talking about. And so that takes decades and centuries to accumulate those kinds of data. Um, and frankly, we haven't had centuries of <laughs> asking these kinds of questions. Um, you know, wild chimpanzees were first studied in the 1950s and 60s. That's right. So yeah. it really hasn't been, uh, there hasn't been much work. In fact, there was almost no work on uh, how these things are moving around their world uh, uh, for real out there in Uganda rather than, you know, at some zoo in Boston. Right. Um, I, I think one of the major points that you hit on, and, and I, I suspect that a lot of people would be surprised by this, but it, it's, it's obviously very critical. You need to obser observe the ancestors, if you will, or the parallel, uh, or the hominids, or the pre-hominids in their natural habitat. Sure. To, yep. See, yep. to see exactly what that range of motion is and how they compensate for their locomotion as well as their food procuring ability to mm -hmm. see how the entire operation works. So the question goes back to something that I think you could probably cast some light on. What did we know about the shape, say, of the foot and the leg from the earliest Australopithecines, or basically what we would call the earliest forerunners of our contemporary form? Sure, sure, sure. So, so the genetic evidence, you know, because one of the things we can ask ourselves is when did those things even live? And mm -hmm. the, the genetic evidence um, gives us a, a, a a ballpark of somewhere around six to eight million years ago when humans and chimpanzees last shared an ancestor. And that animal was not a chimpanzee. So when I study chimpanzees, I need to be careful not to use them as time machines. We're not going right. back in the past and seeing what our ancestors used to be like because chimps have evolved too. But they can be a good model for understanding uh, what happens when you have a large-bodied animal climbing a tree, um, which are early predecessors would have, would have been. So if we go back to that time period of, you know, six million years ago, seven million years ago, we have so few fossils. It's just a painfully uh, scarce time period for the fossil record. And in fact, um, you know, if I was talking to you 15 years ago, uh, there was nothing. There was, there was nothing from that time period that we could identify as being a member of the, the human lineage. We now have at least a few more fossils. We have a skull of something from Chad uh, called Sahelanthropus. Right. We have some material from Kenya, something called Auroran. And then there's a magnificent skeleton from Ethiopia of a creature known as an Artipithecus. And the names don't matter, Artipithecus, Sahelanthropus. The names don't really matter. These things in general, what they look like, is um, something that has a chimpanzee-sized brain, but small canine teeth, more like what you would see uh, in, in, in the human lineage rather than in chimpanzee or, 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 or gorilla lineages, which have very large fang canine teeth, especially in the males. These things look like they're very well equipped for life in the trees, but that when they came down to the ground, they may have been walking around on two legs rather than they certainly weren't knuckle walking. There's very little evidence of that. Um, but it looks like they were they were navigating from one food source to the next on on two legs. So the very earliest things we have 
um, Ardipithecus uh, would be the best example, four and a half million years old, um, and, and, and maybe some uh, uh, fossils that are a little bit older of um, the first creatures that started to move around their world on, on two legs. Let's take a break here for sure. a couple of minutes, and we will be back with this fascinating discovery, uh, fascinating discovery, fascinating discussion with uh, Dr. Jeremy De Silva on uh, early locomotion, and we'll be back after these words. Voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. He'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Thank you. We're back with a fascinating discussion on locomotion and human evolution. And uh, I was talking to our special guest, Dr. Jeremy De Silva, over the break about some of the concepts that even some professionals have had to rethink. And, and one of them is that back even as recently as 15, 20 years ago, we were sort of stuck at looking as, at the Australopithecines as, mm-hmm. as being sort of the break point. And, and as, as evolutionary anthropologists, we have to be very careful about even using such terms as break point because we, we're, we're trying to look at it from multidimensional perspectives. And 
mm-hmm. we want to sort of knock down linearity as a concept here, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. But I think we're sort of pushing back the chronologies of establishing these connections between uh, functional morphology and the change in locomotion and the descent from the trees, if you will, to mm-hmm. a broader time frame back a frame that goes back to six to seven million years ago. And Jeremy, uh, I would like for you to sort of discuss that in some greater detail and fill out the picture that we have been uh, gradual, not even gradually, suddenly learning about, say, in the past 15, 20 years on how these changes took place and what we know now. Sure, sure. Well, uh, I, think, I think the starting point is that this is a, the kind of question that's been informed both by um, fossil evidence and also by genetics, a very different approach, but the two have to be complementary, and they have to both uh, uh, you know, give us a sense of when did this happen? When did humans and chimpanzees and gorillas last share a common ancestor? Um, and and only then, I think, can you begin to get at the questions of um, how did those lineages then go off on their on their own paths? And ultimately, why? You know, why upright walking? It's right. a very odd way to move. You know, why would you why would you move on two legs? There's no other mammal that habitually moves on two legs. Um, you know, a bear can get up on two legs, or you know, I can dance with my dog, I guess, on two legs, but there's nothing else that, that strides on two legs. Sure. Uh, and so it demands an explanation. Why in the world was this a good way in, uh, for, to move for our ancestors? How did that promote their survival? And, and before we even get to those questions, we have to, we have to know when this happened so that we can identify fossils that are going to be on our lineage and not on the lineage of, of one of the other apes, which is incredibly difficult to do because the closer you get to that time period where they share a common ancestor, uh, the more similar they're all going to look to each other. So, so where, do, where, are we at, where are we at with that in terms of, of, of getting any kind of clarity or yeah. some, at least some kind of a hypothesis that can be supported with a fair background data-wise? And can we talk about descent from the trees um, sure. and, the, and the movement towards bipedalism or functional walking? So the geneticists um, have, have come down in general uh, to dates somewhere in the ballpark of about five to eight million years ago in Africa was the common ancestor between humans, chimpanzees, and gorillas. And Most how secure are we with that at this point? Pretty uh, good? <laughs> I'm just, some, I know I'm putting you on the spot. But. Sure, sure, sure. There, I mean, I'm not a geneticist, but I know there are some papers that have suggested that the common ancestor may be more recent, right. and there are some papers that suggest it may be more distant, maybe right. closer to nine, ten million rather than four or five million. It's, it's not 20 million. And it's not two million. So we're so much we can, closer than we used to be in yes, terms of exactly. And we, we will get closer. And the fossils help with this. The fossils help us sort of calibrate uh, uh, the, the sort of the genetic clock, if you will, to some degree. Um, and, and, but unfortunately, the fossils from that time period are not very plentiful. They're certainly more plentiful than they used to be. Right. Uh, but they're not as plentiful. And... Uh, as what comes later when we talk about Australopithecus. But the great thing about these fossils that are being found is they, um, they're not chimpanzees. So the whole idea that we evolved from a thing that was very chimpanzee-like, you know, many of your listeners will have that classic image of a chimpanzee slowly turning into a human. Right. And it's just, it's not right. It's just flat out wrong. The animal that was the last common ancestor of humans and chimps wasn't a chimp. Chimps have, have evolved too. 
and that last common ancestor, uh, we're getting a little bit more clarity of, of what that thing was like. Um, and it was an animal that certainly lived in the trees, but it, it may be, it may, did, may not have knuckle walked, uh, is what some of these fossils are, are suggesting. And so bipedalism, therefore, would have emerged not from a knuckle walking ancestor necessarily, but it may have emerged from something clamoring around in the trees. And maybe the first upright walkers were actually walking on the tops of branches up in trees. Is it possible that once the descent from the trees occurred, there was some kind of a combination of limited bipedalism and a little bit of knuckle walking, or is that a possibility? Or It certainly is a possibility. The problem is um, we identifying it in the fossil record. That if that was the case, then you, would, you should see a creature that has um, anatomies of the lower limb, uh, that are conducive for upright walking. You know, anatomies of the knee, for instance, are usually very, very um, uh, uh, clear in whether something walked on two legs or not. Um, for instance, there's an angulation of the knee uh, called a bicondylar angle, and it's just sort of a, it, it causes our knees to, to touch each other. It causes us to be knock-kneed. Um, chimpanzees are not knock-kneed. And the cool thing about this is that we're not born with it. And if you never do walk on two legs, um, you don't develop it. So it is a true indicator that if you have this angulation of your, of your knee, you had to have walked on two legs. There's no other motion that would cause the knee to form in that manner. So if we see that in a fossil, there's no question that thing walked on two legs. We then can look at the, the finger bones and the knuckles as our evidence that something may have knuckle walked. Um, and the earliest fossils that we have of things that look like they're walking on two legs don't show evidence of knuckle walking. Now, it doesn't mean we won't find something that shows that combination. You know, if tomorrow some 8 million-year-old fossil is announced that has that combination of anatomies, then there we go. <laughs> it turns out that the last common ancestor probably did knuckle walk, and we would have to revise uh, our, our uh, explanations um, but for now, with the evidence we currently have, um, it looks like bipedalism evolved not from something knuckle-walking, but from something that was um, at home in the trees. And then, but then one, one of the, the major the points that you're making here, and I think a lot of people can certainly digest this, is that the shape of the foot will tell you if it walked on two or four. It does. It does... Um, you know, the shape, shape of all the different joints tells us in different ways how something is moving. The hip joint's important. The lower back's important. The knee is important. And the foot, of course, and the heel and the ankle. Um, rarely, though, do we find any fossils that preserve all those. <laughs> so we're Right, but on... you can infer these things. The more pieces you have in yes. the lower extremity, yes. you'll basically be, because there are, these are comp- compensatory mechanisms in the shape of the knee, the shape of the hip, mm-hmm. and how this all pieces together. So what is the most complete piece of information that we have right now? Um, for the lower extremities, say from the hip down, if we can say uh-huh. that, that is, is giving us a really accurate picture of, of, of uh, actual upright walking. So, so one of the, the more marvelous skeletons discovered in the last uh, uh, decade or two was Artipithecus. 
uh, from Ethiopia. It's four and a half million years old, lived in a at least somewhat forested environment, um, and it has a magnificently preserved foot. And it has a foot that, that on the inside of the foot, it looks like, a, like an ape foot, has a big grasping toe, so it's equipped for climbing. And the outside of the foot uh, looks like a, like a good upright walker's. It's stiff and rigid, uh, and that would allow it to push off its, uh, off the ground and walk on two legs. So it's a marvelous combination of something that is adapted for life in the trees and probably climbed quite well, but then to move from one food patch to the next, um, it had a it had evolved a, a foot on the outside that that allowed it to you know, push off the ground in a reasonably efficient manner, or at least efficient enough that that thing survived long enough to leave descendants. And we think, or at least some researchers suspect, that the descendants of um, Artipithecus were um, was Australopithecus, and that's a group that we know uh, a lot more about. We have many more fossils of those. What do we have? This Artipithecus is is clearly a, a major, major find. Is there anything yeah. other than the foot that we have? Do we have tibia? Do we have a femur? Do we have anything like that? They're very fragmentary. What we do have um, that is crushed, but it's been reconstructed with um, CAT scan technology, with a specimen's been CAT scanned and then reconstructed, uh, is the pelvis. And the pelvis of a human is strikingly different than the pelvis of a chimpanzee in terms of how the hip musculature helps balance the body when you're standing on a single leg. And you don't have to balance yourself on a single leg if you're quadrupedal. If you're walking on all fours, this is never a problem. But if you're walking on two legs, every time you lift up one of them, your body wants to fall over and tip over to the side that you just lifted up. And when chimpanzees walk on two legs, that's exactly what they do. They wobble back and forth. They fall alternatively from one side to the other. Um, the pelvic anatomy has changed in the human lineage. All it's done is just uh, the bone itself uh, has, has reshaped to the side of the body, and that repositions these muscles uh, to serve as a balancing mechanism. So I could stand on one leg for a long period of time and not tip over. And Artipithecus, uh, based on the, the reconstructed pelvis, uh, appears to have been able to do this. And, so that's and one of the we, best we will take another break. I'm sorry, sure. to, uh, <laughs> but we're going to take another break, and we'll be back with this fascinating discussion on human evolution as is manifest in locomotion and walking on twos, if you will, right after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Adoption changes a family forever. 
for the adopters as well as the adoptees. There are many adjustments that need to be made, from lifestyle to financial, and the personal rewards are unlimited. Listen every week for Your Adoption Coach with Kelly Ellison. We will examine in detail such topics as international and domestic adoption. We will talk with adoption professionals and hear stories about real families adopting. If you've been thinking about adoption or recently began the process, you'll want to tune in to be inspired every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're discussing human evolution in today's program with our special guest, Dr. Jeremy De Silva uh, from Boston University, who is an expert on functional morphology and evolution of the foot and uh, the lower extremities and uh, reconstructing the pathways of uh, hominid evolution from very, very early time frames, and uh, Dr. De Silva is enlightening us on the fact that the period from approximately six million to four and a half million years ago was a key turning point or a key uh, point of inflection, if you will, in the uh, emergence of bipedalism or walking on twos. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, Dr. De Silva, why don't you go back and talk a little bit more about Artipithecus, which which you say is reasonably well dated to about four and a half million years ago on mm-hmm. the basis of tephrochronology, volcanics, and of course that that is uh, one of the key elements in why we f- tend to find these types of fossils in East Africa because they preserve that kind of datable chronology that we can we can use for reconstructing the sequences. Why don't you take us into that slightly better known, for lack of a better uh, expression or phraseology, transition from uh, Artipithecus into the Australopithecines, for which the fossil record is clearly a lot richer. Why don't we sure. get into that? And uh, again, let's hear your emphasis on the bipedalism and the functional morphology of the foot and legs. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, Artipithecus, um, it's one of those wonderful skeletons that's going to be studied for a long time, and a lot of folks are going to have you know, differing opinions on interpreting exactly how it moved around its world, in part because there's nothing today that moves quite like it. So we don't have a good model for how this thing moved. Um, it may have been chimp-like in some respects of its climbing, but it may not have climbed exactly like a chimp. And if it did walk on two legs, which we suspect it did based on some aspects of its foot and pelvic anatomy, its hip bones, um, it wouldn't have walked on two legs quite like us. And yet, that's the starting point. That's the anatomy from which bipedalism emerged. And we can really see the evolution 
and the emergence of striding upright bipedalism, and not in some hunched-over, inefficient quite manner, but really good and energetically efficient striding, heel-striking bipedalism happening soon after Artipithecus in the earliest members of Australopithecus. So that that moment, that it's not even a moment, but that time period between, say, 4.5 million and about 3.5 million, our ancestors living on more of a, a savanna or grassland environment would have been subject to some pretty fierce natural selection pressures and evolved uh, pretty efficient upright walking. If you're a lousy upright walker, you would have been picked off by leopards. Uh, and so these things got pretty good at it. So, but 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 in terms of the way they actually walked, and I, I looked at some of your writing and, and some of the other material that's relevant to this, they didn't really walk unidirectionally. They they sort of kind of quasi waddled because of the structure of the foot. Is that is that true? They they so, you know a little more lateral motion or not? you know it, this is a great great question, and the answer now as a result of new discoveries is. It depends on the Australopithecus species you're talking about. Wow. So, we, you know, your listeners may have heard of Australopithecus. They may know about the very famous Lucy fossil. Sure. And so much of what we know about Australopithecus has been based on Lucy and many of the, the other individuals that were found in Ethiopia that are attributed to her species. There's a child now, for instance, is a three-year-old uh, a, a child skeleton that was discovered in Ethiopia. There's an adult male now that's known from that site. So it's not just Lucy. There are lots of other individuals. And that same species left footprints, and those footprints allow us to see uh, very clearly that these things are walking on two legs and walking in much the same way that you and I walk, maybe subtly different. But if you could see them at a distance walking across the savanna, they'd be moving very, very human-like, at least in my opinion. But there were different kinds of Australopithecus living on the landscape. During the break, I was counting them up in my head, and there's a minimum, minimum of seven different kinds of Australopithecus living between four and two million years ago. Okay, but wait a second. Let's do that's that's a critical point here. How are we breaking out the various kinds? On what criteria <laughs> and how do you how do we group them at this point? Because when I yeah. was in grad school, we had 3. Mhm. Mm that was it. Yeah. Robustus, Things, the gracile's, yep. etc. and then Lucy came along and re recalibrated the entire equation and now we're up to 7. So give us a little sure. bit of a lesson on uh, taxonomy and how we break this up. Yeah, the, of course the problem is different researchers have different taxonomies. If only we could get DNA out of these things, we'd be able to know truly who is related to whom. But right. we can't squeeze DNA out of the bones. So we rely on the shapes of the bones. We rely, rely very much on the shapes of teeth and, and, and aspects of the skulls and, of course, their chronology. And what it appears to be happening, uh, uh, at, least, at least for the moment, is that there are uh, uh, Australopithecines living in East Africa, and there are Australopithecines living in South Africa. Two different kinds in the South, uh, uh, one called Africanus and one called Sediba, this new one I've been working on, and a couple of different kinds in the East, Anamensis, Afarensis, Garhi, and then there's a whole other group that you talked about uh, that you mentioned, the robust Australopithecines that evolved these wonderfully large crania, uh, not because they were brainy, but because they had incredible musculature to power their jaws and to eat 
uh, tough, fibrous foods. Imagine, you know, digging up a raw potato and eating that. Right. Um, they have this incredible musculature for that. And all of these different hominids coexisting, many of whom coexisted on their landscape, it appears as though um, they all walked a little differently, or at least some of them walked a little differently from each other. Um, that there's not this linear progression towards you know, human bipedalism. And at any one cross-section in time, you would uh, look on the African uh, landscape in both South and East Africa and see different experiments in bipedalism going on. And again, breaking them out, you're saying, I mean, it's, it's like one of these fascinating arguments, depending on who you talk to, what sure. the criteria are, there could possibly be uh, even, uh, you know, more, more types than there are archaeologists or anthropologists looking yep. at them. <laughs> and and I, I think the one thing that, that, that has not changed is certainly that there has always been an East African school, if you will, and a South African school. Sure. And, and that uh, now, now, of course, we're starting to find these things in, in, uh, in Northern Africa as well. Mm. But having broken this out, do we have a functional morphology for the Australopithecus that you could say, okay, these are the generic tendencies or the generic uh, characteristics of an Australopithecine? Yes. Yes, I think we do. And, and that's one way we can lump them all together as Australopithecus. Um, they walked on two legs. And they walked on two legs uh, in a more efficient and more human-like way than Artipithecus did. But some of them walked on two legs probably more like you and I do, and some of them walked on two legs less, and some of them walked on two legs. At least the, the new one I've been working on, this uh, Australopithecus sediba, looks like it walked on two legs in a very peculiar way, in a way that we don't, uh, that, that, that nothing today quite walks in that manner. And it's not a hunched over chimpanzee-like gait. Uh, it's a very different kind of gait. So in general, I think we can say that these are Australopithecus in general, uh, had brains about the size of a gorilla, in bodies about the size of chimpanzee bodies. Uh, they walked on two legs, and some of them uh, climbed trees. Uh, some of them probably only climbed trees late at night to avoid getting eaten uh, right. at night. So some were better at that than others, I suspect. Uh, some ate uh, uh, more meat than others. Others were more sort of vegetarian. And that's probably why they evolved into, into the different species, is because they were filling different niches. Uh, on their on their landscape, can we break it out? Are we secure enough in this uh, taxonomy that we could say you're on two legs, you're an Australopithecine? Well, I think you need more. You need um, more because then I'd be an Australopithecine. I no, no, I mean if you start starting yeah. back in the evolutionary lineages. I mean, sure. uh, but is this is where we break off? If yeah. we want to use it in a generic sense, your two legs you're really old, then you're basically, that's where it starts. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. And uh, so then let's talk about the type of variability in the feet themselves, because I know this is one of your major areas, and, and this is the one that you're using to develop a lot of models of locomotion. And again, going back into the entire evolutionary situation and, mm -hmm. and, 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 and breaking off how the lineage is breaking, uh, break off. How do you look at the foot and what are the characteristics of the foot that have helped you uh, essentially develop your interpretive potentials and your interpretive sure. ranges. Sure. So I, I think a great starting point is the heel. 
Um, the human heel is incredibly different from a chimpanzee heel. A chimpanzee heel is quite small. Uh, it's hooked. It has a, almost a beak shape to it where muscle attaches uh, that goes off to the toes and helps the toes grasp and, and grab onto tree branches. Humans have a very large, flat heel, and that helps increase the surface area to dissipate forces during heel strike. You can think of uh, you know, a bed of nails, for instance, somebody lying on a bed of nails, helps dissipate forces and prevents any one nail from damaging the person. Well, if you break your heel, you're going to get eaten by a leopard. So those individuals who had larger heels are going to survive better. And we see the enlargement of the heel very early in Australopithecus. Lucy's species, Australopithecus afarensis, had this robust, large heel. And so I thought, well, they must all have these large, robust heels then. Right. And recently I started working on the skeletons discovered in a South African cave, uh, and they're called Australopithecus sediba, and they are magnificent skeletons. We have two skeletons, one of an adult female, one of a juvenile male. They are just under 2 million years old, and Lucy and her kind are over 3 million years old. So if anything, the heel, you know, given that it's a million years closer to modern humans, the heel should look at the very least, like Lucy's, and it doesn't. It looks like a chimpanzee's heel. It's amazing. And yet everything else about its skeleton, about its knee and hip and lower back, tells us that it walked on two legs. But it couldn't have walked on two legs the same way Lucy did or the same way I do, because if it heel struck uh, the way we do with a chimpanzee-like heel, it'd be in big trouble. So this led us down this path. Because Because it would have a massive impact force on Uh, that heel over a very small area. So it would be like a bed of nails, but just with a couple of nails. The person uh, would be in really big trouble. And this would uh, apply across the heel uh, as well in these ancient creatures. And so with that as our starting point, we ended up developing a hypothesis based on uh, both the heel but also the ankle uh, the midfoot region, the knee, and the hip in this creature of uh, Australopithecus sediba, uh, it, that it walked uh, with a gait that we call hyperpronation. And the words don't matter. I mean, it's sort of a technical term, but what it would, what it would do is, is walk in a very different kind of way than humans today, much uh, more, uh, uh, sort of twistier kind of walk, more rotation, more twisting in of the foot, twisting in of the knee, twisting in of the hip, which would help it climb but when it came down to the ground, those anatomies that help you climb are going to affect how you walk. And that's exactly what we see in this particular kind of Australopithecus, walking in a very different kind of way. And we will be back and continue our fascinating discussion with Dr. Jeremy De Silva after these words. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris. Real talk on business and parenthood. 
hosted by Chris Efesiu. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host, Jordan Kimmel, is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're discussing the uh, human evolution pattern from the perspective of the lower extremities and from the actual reconstructions that our current guest, Dr. Jeremy De Silva of Boston University, has been making on locomotion and what locomotion is about and the ways it evolved and using the australopithecines which are at this point being accepted as the, the unequivocal forerunners of, of uh, bipedalism. Um, we're, we're talking about the various ways in which they walked and uh, when we're trying to bring chimpanzees into this discussion, you made this startling comment uh, during the break that we learned to walk, walk basically twice. Yeah, it, it's it's possible. Um, I think the new fossils from South Africa, these Australopithecus sediba, which are some of the most important fossils I think that have ever been found, don't have the kind of foot anatomy I would have expected for an Australopithecus at two million years old. They should be more human-like, and they're not. They're more chimp-like in many respects. And one of the ways to interpret that is that the South African Australopithecines, therefore, did not evolve from the East African Australopithecines and instead share a more distant common ancestor with them. Okay, so who is that common ancestor? It would be an Ardipithecus. And what that would imply is that Ardipithecus or an Ardipithecus-like animal inhabited the forests that stretched from East down to South Africa and that in East Africa, they evolved into an Australopithecus walking in one particular way, and in South Africa, they evolved into an Australopithecus walking in a different kind of way. Right. So you would have upright walking, you know, habitual, obligate, all the time upright walking, uh, evolving, essentially evolving twice. Now, but the but isn't, from, this, isn't sure. this really similar in some ways 
to the line of thinking that we had maybe 30 years ago or 40 years ago when the Australopithecines were recognized as having diverged even on the basis of their cranial structure, so, that, that essentially there were different types of Australopithecines simply based on what they were eating and what their mm -hmm, cranial mm -hmm. structure was all about. So you're further differentiating it into the, into the realm of bipedalism and, and the, actual more, the actual shape of their walking pattern, and that's, that's a further refinement of, we have, of what we have with the Australopithecines. That's right. That's right. I think, I think this, is, this is completely um, consistent with what folks are seeing in the tooth and cranial morphology. And from, a, from a, the point of view of an evolutionary biologist, it makes sense that you wouldn't get sure. speciation unless you're getting different niches filled. These of course, have to be. Otherwise, they'd just be competing with each other over the same resources. So it makes sense that they would be filling different niches, evolving different kinds of adaptations, both for living uh, in their in their environment, including locomotion, uh, but also for for eating. Um, so I think I think it 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 reinforces that idea. Now, w one of the reasons I think we haven't been able to really say this previously is we just simply haven't had the fossils. Right. Um, in the last ten years. The, the floodgates of fossil foot bones and skeletons have opened. It's unreal how many new skeletons and how many new uh, fossil foot bones we have. Uh, and they reveal a story of, of wonderful variation. So the Sediba, the Australopithecus Sediba, is, is clearly one of the gateways that, that you're using to look at the entire bipedal uh, argument and, mm -hmm. and, and to, to pin it down. Let me take you back to uh, the discovery of these. When was it made and how many, how many samples do you have? How sure. many, what's the population and what parts of the anatomy are represented? So the skeletons were discovered in 2008. And they were found by the nine-year-old son of paleoanthropologist Lee Berger. Um, he was, uh, <laughs> he was looking for new fossil sites. He had used Google Earth, actually, to look for new cave uh, uh, localities in South Africa that could be identified by um, seeing trees growing out of fissures in the ground. Right. And then he would go and map these and look for fossils. And uh, he went to this one cave that looks somewhat promising. It's just a hole in the ground, really. Uh, and his son tripped over a chunk of rock and looked at the chunk of rock, and there was a fossil sticking out of it. And he said, hey, Dad, I found a fossil. And his dad assumed it was an antelope or a zebra, because that's usually what we find, or of course, fossils sure. of the other animals. And uh, it was a collarbone uh, from an early hominid. And what followed in the, the, the months that, that followed that initial discovery uh, 250 fossilized bones of, of early humans representing two skeletons, almost complete skeletons, of an adult female and a juvenile uh, male have been, have been discovered, and they are magnificent. To give you a sense of how complete, especially the female is, she, it, it, you know, I study upright walking, and if I want to really understand how something moves, I would like to have my, my, my wish list would be um, a heel, an ankle, a knee, a hip, and a lower back. Of course, because they're all so connected, and they yeah. tell you about locomotion. Key anatomies. Lucy, magnificent Lucy, nothing to take away, taking away from Lucy. She preserves two of those, two out of the five. She right. has a beautiful ankle and a nice hip. Her knee is crushed, her heel was never found, and her lower back is incomplete. The female Australopithecus sediba preserves all five anatomies. 
And that's why we can reconstruct precisely how she walked. We have all of the anatomies represented. Not all of them. I'd like to see what a big toe looks like. We don't have that yet. But the cave site itself, um, we haven't even started excavating yet. These were all surface finds. So once we start excavating, um, we're going to have so many more of these fossils. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful site. Wonderful. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that the future looks bright, certainly in terms of these types of reconstructions mm -hmm. and piecing uh, more pieces of the puzzle together on upright walking and uh, actually reconstructing the ways in which this bipedalism looked and, and how we're able to reconstruct it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are coming towards the end of our program. I just, uh, in, very briefly, can you tell me uh, where our research is going at this point? Well, what I'm doing is I'm studying a lot of locomotion in modern people. I'm really interested in the variation in different ways that humans today walk uh, and what their foot bones actually look like. Uh, we know startlingly little about that. In fact, I didn't even know what my own foot looked like. And so recently, uh, I've started an MRI project where we're MRIing uh, people, walking them, watching them walk, uh, and, and then MRIing their foot. And actually, just today, I had a look at an MRI of my own foot, um, and we are isolating with a computer, isolating out the foot bones themselves, and then printing them out with a 3D printer. So I'm going to be able to study uh, the foot bones of people that I can then watch walk. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. You are how you walk. And, <laughs> and on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to close this very fascinating discussion with Dr. Jeremy De Silva of Boston University. I want to thank you so much for appearing on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Uh, and until next time, the past, as we've said before, is the key to the future. So this is Joe Sheldon Ryan signing off, and we'll see you again next week. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.